Dave, Dave is a dear friend to me, and if it wasn't for him getting completely annihilated on a four-wheeler, I probably wouldn't be here today. So it's a long story, but Dave, um, we were on a mission trip, and Dave fell off a four-wheeler, went flying head over heels down the street, and because of that, I got to lead the team, which eventually I ended up over here. So Dave, thank you. <laughs> thank you for taking one for the team, okay? No, but seriously, Dave, Dave's a dear friend. We've done ministry together now for five or six years, maybe seven years, and Dave has a heart to serve and to bless. And one of the things that I appreciate about Dave is the guy that you see up here preaching on a Sunday morning is the same guy that you see the rest of the week. There's no, there's no discrepancy or difference between the life that he preaches and the Word of God that he delivers and the way that he lives his life day to day. And that speaks volumes to the, what God has done in his life. So, Dave, thanks for coming. For better or worse, right? Some of you have heard that story before, though, where, um, where I crashed on the four-wheeler. I put my shoulder into the center of my chest and broke a few ribs, and I got destroyed. Um, but before we left, there was a prophetic word that God would give Johnny more responsibility. I had no idea it would come about by such physical pain. But sometimes you just got to take one for the team. So, um, anyways, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Hey, we're really proud of what you guys are doing here. I just want to tell you that. Living Word is just so excited about what God has done here at Mercy Hill through you. And we celebrate it often. Uh, we talk about it. We pray for you guys often. And we're just delighted to see that what God shows us in terms of a vision, He actually is faithful to see accomplished in terms of reality. And as we're worshiping here um, this morning, I was just reminded again how faithful God is. And so that's true in our corporate sense, in our churches, and it's true in our personal lives. And so be encouraged. God is faithful. And as you are just going through whatever you're going through, you've got to continually remember that. God is faithful. And um, even when we're not, even when we blow it, even when we fail, God is still faithful. It's a difference between us and him. And so, um, so we're grateful for that. All right, I am, just as far as the offering goes, I do encourage you to give to that sacrificially. Um, it's a hard time to ask for money, but um, it's, a, it's the right time to ask for money. Um, we must help our brothers and sisters at Crosspoint. Living Word will be doing the same. We'll be uh, mustering whatever we can to contribute towards them. It's just one of the ways that we function as churches. Uh, we are not a bunch of just independent churches scattered around who happen to have a lot of friendships. We are a family of churches. Uh, we are, uh, in more ways than just, um, I don't know, informal ways, we're connected. And we are one family in three different churches. And so in order to sustain that and to continue the beauty of that, we must be intentional about it. And so we need to invest in those relationships. We need to be there for the other churches when they need us. Uh, as Cross Point does now. As they step out in faith, we step out in faith with them. That's part of what it means being a family, is that we just add our faith to theirs. And in some sense, we add our finances to theirs. And so none of you had a say as to whether they bought that building or not. But as you see your brothers and sisters going forward, you're like, hey, you know what? <clears throat> they're stepping out in faith. They're going for it here. They're broke. <laughs> but they're stepping out in faith because they know that God has a future. God has the gospel that wants to expand and the kingdom of God is going to impact Crown Point more and more and more as they walk in faith. And so they're diligent to do that. 
And as we see them step out in faith, as part of their family, we say amen to that. And we put our faith into action, and we send them a check, and we pray for them. And maybe a phone call every once in a while to say, hey, we are so excited about what you're doing. It'd be nice if you said in the next two or three weeks, if you have friends at Crosspoint, or even if you don't, if you want to send an email to the office, just say, we are so blessed and encouraged by the step of faith you're taking. It provokes us. Does it provoke you? Yeah. It provokes us at Living Word. It really does. We're just so afraid of being passed up by all the churches we planted that we've got a lot of motivation right now. <laughs> that might not be. The, Johnny said the same day you get during the week is what you're going to get here. So, um, Anyways, let's pray and ask God to um, bless our time here this morning. Father, we're so grateful that you rescued us. Lord, those words in, that, in, the, in the songs, God, only reflect the truth and the reality of the gospel. God, that you rescued us. Your word says, not because of any righteous thing we had done, but because of your grace. And we're grateful for that, God. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you'd fill this place with your grace. God, as we open up your word, I pray that you'd open up our hearts. God, as we go through your word, I pray that you would, your word would go through our hearts. God, that it would change us, it would adjust us. God, we want to genuinely surrender this morning to your authority. God, we're such a, a world that despises authority. Maybe not blatantly, but in our hearts, we want to be and get the last say. But this morning we say, Lord, it's you that gets the last say. And so um, we ask, speak to us. God, I pray for those that may have experienced disappointments in the area of relationships. God, that your word would stir faith in our hearts. God, that we wouldn't live in disappointment or fear. God, that we would walk in faith in all that we do, in particular as it pertains to this subject in relationships, God. And so we just pray you bless us this morning. In your name we ask. Amen. Uh, Johnny asked me if I would come this morning and preach about marriage, kind of prime the pump for the marriage conference this weekend. And so I'm going to be preaching on uh, the general topic of marriage. In particular, we're going to look at a scenario where a young man finds a wife, which is good. How many people here are married? Just going to pull the audience. Nice. Congratulations. Well done. Really? Did you know that? Had no idea. Congratulations. Um, how many people here are not married? Hey, all right. So I think the non-marrieds win. All right, of the non-marrieds, how many non-marrieds are like of the marrying age? So if you're like, if you're like 11, don't raise your hand, Luke. Okay? You're n- not yet. Neither is my 13-year-old daughter. So if you're of the marrying age, and we'll call marrying age in our world somewhere between you know, 18 and up. So, how many people in the marrying age, not yet married, pretty excited about the day that'll come? Fantastic. All right. All right. Well, this, this, this bud's for you. I, um, I love, there's, the Bible has these great little snippets about marriage. Just these little, tiny, little eight-word eight phrases. And let me just give you a couple of them. Ecclesiastes 9, it says this, Enjoy life with the woman you love. How many people say amen to that, guys? Amen. amen. How about this? Let's, let's get married and then actually enjoy life with the woman you love. Let's just have a riot. Let's 
Let's take this woman that we've longed for since puberty and let's let's enjoy it. That's a biblical imperative. The Bible says don't get married and have a miserable time. Don't get married and just like gut it out. But hey, get married and then just for kicks, enjoy your wife for the rest of your life. Now, that's not like a rose colored glasses type statement to saying it's always going to be just a big old garden of roses. It's always going to be like, you know, fun and and no response. It's not that. But there is a deep, profound and even sometimes shallow and frivolous, frivolous, frivolous. One of those. There is that in marriage and God intends it. He intends it. He says in his word, enjoy life with the woman you love. Um, Proverbs 18 says this. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Hey, so guys, if you can find one, it's good. If you're like, hey, I found this woman and I think she could be my wife. Is that good or bad? The Bible says it's good. It's really good. As a matter of fact, the NLT translates that. It says, a man who finds a wife finds a treasure. Now, if you find a treasure, is that good or bad? It's good. The gospel is described as a treasure in a field. The gospel is such as, it's like it's a treasure in the field. The man finds this treasure. He's like, oh, it's a treasure. No one else knows. Bury it. He buries it. He runs away. He sells everything he has. He's like emptying his. And he's like, I got a pile of money and I'm going to buy this field. Why? Because there's a treasure in there. No one else knows. It's like Crosspoint. They buy that building. And then one day they're like going through the attic and they find like this big box of gold coins from, the, from like 1272. We had no idea. It's a treasure. Well, that's how... That's how Jesus describes the gospel. Coming to Jesus is like that. And it's interesting that the, the same word, the same imagery is used in terms of a wife. The Bible is just full of imagery that, that associates the gospel and salvation and the, our delight in God with marriage. Now, that's not always people's, you know, marriage is usually the butt of jokes instead of thought of as a treasure. I was at an event last night. It was a gymnastics thing. Uh, I was like a volunteer leader. I was just watching kids so they didn't kill each other on these trampolines and stuff. And all the parents are there and the dads. And I'm, I'm meeting some of these dads. And, and I was meeting this dad I'd never met before. And we're talking and we get, you know, that awkward lull in the conversation. Like, okay, I asked what you did. You didn't really ask anything about me, but that's kind of what you're like. So, okay. But our conversation is now stalled. And we're looking at each other. And we got our hand. You know, anyways, he obviously feels the discomfort of the social situation. So he says, hey, have you heard this one? And he starts rattling off dirty jokes. I'm like, no way. I had, I'm so naive. But that's like a guy thing. If there's awkward silence, you don't know what to do. You've got like a bunch of dirty jokes in your back pocket. You just pull those out and the party's alive again, I guess. I never knew that. But that clearly that's what he was like. Couldn't stand the out, and he starts putting, and all these dirty jokes about wives. I'm like, what the heck? I don't want to hear these stupid, dirty jokes about how stupid wives are. 
But that's like it's like so much of our society treats marriage like that. And maybe not as blatantly because it was pretty blatant. He was like, I'm like, man, I'm like, and I was like, man, I don't I don't think these are funny. <laughs> Do you know any funny jokes? <laughs> and then he walked away and I, it was it. It was the end. <laughs> the dirty jokes didn't save our conversation. But the point is, there's such a maybe not as blatant, but there is a subtle thing in our society that marriage is like ball and chain. That's an old imagery. I remember when I was, I was a kid, there was this song, um, I forget who sings it, you may know it. She's got, she's got me tied down with battleship chains, 50 foot long with a 10 foot anchor, or 10 ton anchor. Have you ever heard that song? It's like a really rocking song. She's got me tied. Anyways, and those things get in us, and we have this idea that marriage is this huge liability. Which is really ironic, because before we're married, you know, it was like running around trying to find a girl, trying to find somebody. I remember that in college, like senior year in college, people that weren't hooked up were like freaking out. See, they're panicking. All the good girls are going to be gone. <laughs> and so it's just ironic that you're young, you're panicking, you got to find one. And then after you're married, you're like, yeah, man, she's like a battleship chain. 50 foot long, 10 foot anchor. Can't do anything. And so we've got this warped and disgusting view that exists in our world about marriage. And we need to understand that God has this view of marriage that it's a treasure. It's something beautiful. It's something phenomenal. And God loves to associate himself with marriage. He just loves to associate himself with it. So much of the, even kingdom of God imagery, the kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet where the king invites. He loves to associate himself with marriage. And so if you're married today, you need to know God loves to associate himself with your marriage. With all its flaws, with all its brokenness, with all its joys and delights, with the parts that aren't right and the parts that are right, God loves to identify himself with marriage. And that's a sign of great hope for you because when we actually take our marriage and wrap it around the gospel the lord and say let's put god in the middle and let's wrap our marriage around it boy it really brings change and i have found this happiness and hell in marriage is only like a few steps away you might think i don't know maybe you're not like me guys but sometimes i think man i'm so i'm just i'm churning inside at some of the pain I'm feeling because something's not working right. It's like three steps away is like the greatest joy and delight in the blessing of the Lord. And yet when you're over here, it's like you can't, it just seems like miles away, but it's not. Because the first step is like repentance. The second step is asking the Lord for help. And the third step, you're like all over your wife. It, it's, it's, it's an amazing deception that the devil brings we think we're miles from reconciliation miles from marriage marital joy and the lord's like no not really a humble heart a few steps in the right direction and suddenly you are enjoying the woman that you love and so god associates himself with marriage i want to um i want to just read and study a little bit from the book of genesis 
because the book of Genesis has this, um, I mean, all kinds of great stories. And um, I want to look at the story of uh, Abraham, who has a son, Isaac. We know the backdrop of this is that Abraham was called by God. God spoke to Abraham, and he gave him a promise. And he said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he called Abraham to leave his country, his family, his security, and go on a journey, which he didn't know where it would go. So Abraham was known as a man of faith, because here's Abraham, and God says to him, hey, I want you to leave everything you know and go somewhere. He was like, great, where are we going? I'm not going to tell you, just go. That that's, takes a lot of faith. It's one thing to believe and say, I believe that God will lead me in my life. I believe that God will take care of me and provide for me. I believe those things. But it's not really until you leave what's comfortable and move into an area that you don't know what's going to happen. It's not until you go there that you're really acting in faith. Because belief is this internal conviction, this mental assent to say, I, really, I believe this to be true. That's what belief is. But faith is action. Faith is putting, I believe this to be true, therefore I'm going to do something about it. You might believe that God really cares about unsaved friends in your world, in your life, maybe a family member. You might really believe that. You might think about it. It might actually hurt you to think, well, man, but they don't know that. and they, they, They're not experiencing the joy of the gospel. They're not experiencing the, the, boy, the relief and the freedom from sin. They're not really living their life with the purposes of God and stuff. And, and you may think that that might hurt you a little bit. And, but until you actually simply communicate, hey, do you know what, Freddie? You know what, Sally? I was reading the Bible recently, and the Bible clearly says how God loves people. And I want you to know that God loves you. It's not, it's not rocket science. But until you actually do that, you are not living in faith. You're not acting in faith. So faith is always in action. So God calls Abraham to leave what he knows to where he doesn't know and calls him to a special purpose. And it's through Abraham that God makes a promise. And he separates him and he says, I will make you a people. And those people became Israel, the Hebrew nation. And he says, through you, all the people of the nations will be blessed. And he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Christ. And here we have this promise. So Abraham is living in this promise. And he lives to be an old man, and he still doesn't even have any children. And then God gives him a son, and his name is Isaac. Remember the story where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, which was another huge act of faith. We won't go into that, but this is a story of faith. And so now what happens is Abraham's wife, Sarah, she dies at 120. That's a long life. But she dies. So here's Abraham, who's also old, and his son, Isaac, who is of the marrying age. He would have raised his hands today. And so Abraham realizes something. Hey, my son needs a wife. And back in those days, the son didn't just go out and hit the bars or go to a good Christian college and try to find a wife. It was a family issue. And so the parents are responsible for finding him a wife. And so obviously... We don't have arranged marriages, and so your relationship that leads to marriage may not look exactly like this. Um, maybe it will. Talk to your folks. But I want to pull from it some great principles about how a, a, a man and a woman should build their life 
in marriage. And so if you're not married, you could say, hey, these are great things. I need to build these into my life to facilitate the day when God brings a wife or a husband. And if you're already married, you look at these and say, boy, I see those qualities. I see what the Bible's teaching here about marriage, and I want to apply them to my life. I want to say, hey, you know what? That's not where I'm at. And so I see the Bible teaching something. I want to get there. Are you willing to do that? Amen. Okay, here we go. Um, Genesis chapter 24. I'll start with verse 1. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years. Chapter 23, Sarah dies. So he's a widower. And he said to his chief servant in his household, he's also very wealthy, he's got huge wealth and people working for him, and he speaks to the head servant, the one in charge of all that he had. He says, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. And that was the land in which he was living. Among who I am living. I could have just read that. But that you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Verse 6, make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me an oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. We have different ways of swearing oaths and making promises. We don't actually like grab our buddy's leg. But it was a solemn issue to Abraham. It was solemn. It was very important. All right, let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master, loading up. He set out for Aram. I didn't practice these names before I came here. He he set off from this place and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside of town, and it was towards evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today. Show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I I am standing beside the spring and the daughters of the town people are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I might have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And before he finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah. I think that's how you say that. Who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. 
She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered her jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. And so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water. She drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. And then the story goes on that he talks to her and um, he finds out what family she's from and she, he gives her some gold bracelets, which are nice, and a gold nose ring. I'm not sure how that looked, but it was very valuable to her. And she put them on and she ran back. Anyway, so this man ends up meeting um, her parents, her family, explains the whole thing. He says, look, this is who I am. This is what I, I was sent for. This is what happened at the well with Rebecca. And the family really responds. They say, this is from the Lord. You can have her. And they ask Rebecca, Rebecca, do you want to go back with him? She says, yes, this is from the Lord. And I want to just read the end. Verse 61. It says, then Rebecca and her maids got ready, mounted their camels and went back with the man. And so the servant took Rebecca and left. Now Isaac had come from Ber Lahaya Rai Roy. For he was living in the uh, Negev. He went out from the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. This is the romantic part. Cue the music. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant replied, answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. And then the servant told Isaac, all he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I, I skipped the part for the purpose of time. It's interesting how it all unfolds. But I want to draw some things out of that. Here we have a successful mission. At the end of the day, Isaac's married. I mean, so often it's so convoluted how guys and girls actually um, find each other and ultimately get married. It can be an absolutely convoluted process, one full of heartache, one full of impurity. And God doesn't want it to be convoluted. God, God doesn't want it to be <clears throat> impure. He doesn't want heartbreak. He wants, <clears throat> he wants our hearts to be guarded and protected until the day we can fully give them to a spouse. I want to look at just some of the things that we see here. Very, at the very beginning of chapter 24, Abraham realized something. It was time. It was time for Isaac to get married. And I just want to say, we need to recognize there are times in our lives when it's not time to get married. Now, Abraham was a discerning man. He knew that his days were numbered. His wife was already gone. And he said, Isaac needs a wife. I pray that we would be so discerning about that. You know, I, I always thought I would get married young. I was always one who just really wanted to get married. I remember people telling me that in college, saying, hey, you, you're going to have a wife like really fast. 
<clears throat> and it was my desire, but it was a desire birthed out of an unwholeness in my own life. I had been through, my family had experienced divorce. I had in my life responded with that by all kinds of attention-getting issues to fill my unwholeness, to somehow make up for the brokenness in my life and my family. And I just, I thought I really wanted a wife, but I didn't, I wasn't ready for one, certainly. And God had to do a deep work in my life in order to prepare me for that time. Because to be honest, I look back and I think if I would have gone into marriage in that state, my poor wife, it would have been, it would have been bad. And so God had to do a deep work in my life. At that time, when I thought it was time to get married, it wasn't. Because there was something going on. God had another agenda that would bring me to a place of being ready. And praise the Lord, he did. And through all my disappointments, through all my wonderings, hey, why isn't this happening? The Lord, in his grace and his wisdom, denied me my desire until he worked a deep work in my heart. It wasn't like an all-completed work, but that'll happen when Christ returns. But he prepared me to be sufficiently whole to enter into marriage. And so when we look at this, we, we have to recognize there is a time for everything, a right time. I know parents often think the right time for my kids to get married is when they're really old, like 40. But then they're liars because they want grandkids. So they themselves are torn by emotion. Or when you're financially stable, have everything in order, you can check the oil in the car without being reminded, and there's all these different, like, criteria that all kinds of different people have for you. You're just like, man, I, I just want to be close to a woman. I just want to have a companion. I just want... All these are wrong things. There is a time when you need to tell the Lord or ask the Lord, is it, am I ready? Is it time to get married? Now, in saying that, I do not want to push back and delay, suggest to say that you should delay getting married. You don't have to be 30 years old and have all the issues in your life worked out in order to get married. In our, in our society, people are getting older and older and older. The, the average age of a married person is getting older. I think for the guys, like 28. The girls, 24, something like that. It's a huge trend in our society. I don't like it, to be honest. I think when you're, you're single that long, it creates all kinds of problems. Managing your emotions, managing your desires. And so I'm not saying push it back until everything's perfect. But I am saying this expedite and facilitate growth in your life so that you will be ready to get married. I know people that got married at 20 and 21. Great friends of ours. They have a wonderful marriage. But you know what? They had expedited, they had facilitated growth in their life so that by the time they were that age, they were ready. Their hearts were whole. They were mature. Unfortunately, in our world today, we've got a bunch of 20-year-old adolescents that don't want to take responsibility. And it's not right. And so if you're one of those people that says, oh, I'm not ready, I'm putting it off, and you're 25, I just got to challenge you strongly. Grow up, get ready, and get married. Fine, fine, I'll grab someone. I'll take you. 
Listen, for most of us, it's God's will in our life that we would get married. That we would enjoy the woman we love for our entire life. And that God would bless us with great things, including a family, including a, a, a heritage of godliness. When you think about what will your life account for, what will you actually give to this earth with your life? Right up there, right on the top, needs to be, I want to give this earth, I want to see in my, my contribution to the world, this world that God made, is a heritage of godly people that I have laid down my life and sacrificed for so that they could know God and serve the purposes of God in this generation. That is a noble and honorable purpose. That you might be called a medicine and science, and you might be called to be a teacher. There might be tons of very important kingdom things that God is calling you into in your life. But not the least of which is godly offspring. Malachi says that. And so our motivation should be, hey, I want to grow up. I want to be mature so that I can make this contribution, so that I can bless a wife, so I can lay down my life for this incredible woman that God wants me to enjoy for my whole life and that we can raise a family and that we can see them grow up and delight in God. There is no greater joy in your life, parents know this, than seeing their kids experience and delight in Jesus. It's the greatest thing. You want to bless your parents? Man, just delight in God. Obey the word. It's one of the greatest joys we can experience. And so we want, we want that. So there's a time for it. But I'm not saying push the time back. I'm saying facilitate and expedite maturity in your life. So that when your desires for marriage are strong, you can be emotionally spiritually ready to fulfill those desires. Does that make sense? All right. Number two, this process of finding a wife for Abraham, it was not like, a, all right, my poor son's going to be a loser and he's going to hang out with all his other married couples and he's not going to have a wife and he's going to have self-esteem issues and, and the poor guy's going to run around with loose women. And It wasn't that. That wasn't what drove the process for Abraham. What drove the process for Abraham was a conviction that God had purpose on the earth today. What drove the process was, and you can see it in the questions the servant asks, hey, why don't you want us to get a wife from the Canaanites? Abraham was like, do not get a wife from the Canaanites. Why? Because that wasn't God's plan for the call of Abraham and the call of his family. He wasn't going to take a pagan wife with all kinds of false gods. He says, don't take one of them. That would be easy. And there was probably a lot of smoking hot Canaanite women that Isaac would have been like, great. She's smoking hot. Why not? But it was driven by conviction. He says, I'm not just going to take any girl that tickles my fancy. But go back to my family. Because God has said, from you and from your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. You know, if Abraham would have, would have screwed up on that one, by the faithfulness of God, he did not. The lineage of Abraham goes right through to Jesus. We are all called children of Abraham by this promise because the gospel was brought through the Jewish people. And this was the beginning of the Jewish nation. And so you think, oh, it's just a little compromise. I'll just do that. I'm sure we'll get one of these Canaanite women and she'll come along. 
she'll get she'll just get right on step with the promise. No, she wouldn't. She would have taken Isaac to worship all kinds of foreign gods. We see that played out in the history of Israel. Anytime Israel went and started compromising when it came to marriage about spiritual convictions and purpose, it's like God got angry with them and disciplined them. And all kinds of pain was set on the nation of Israel. Why? So much of it was because you married foreign women, women who had false gods, you didn't keep your eye on the ball, that you were to be a chosen people, you were to be a people that presented the goodness of God to the whole world. But you, you, you caved in, you took the smoking hot Canaanite woman, and you started worshiping the gods, and you just compromised, and your life became not a picture of God's goodness and God's mission to the world. Your life became this awful, compromised, idolatrous, pursuit of personal pleasure and it didn't work and so it's driven by conviction what about the the, the servants like well all right well you want me to go there well what chick is going to want to come back out here in the middle of nowhere away from her family away from her friends away from the world she knows she's not going to want what if she doesn't want to come back and this is amazing abraham was like if she won't come back with you i release you from your vow but listen to me Something supernatural is going to happen and she's going to come back because I know that God is faithful. I know that God can do what doesn't make sense in our minds. I know that God will take a woman who is loving life back in that place that I can't pronounce. Who's loving life and something is going to happen because God is in control and she is going to herself step out in faith and say, I'll go with you. But if she doesn't, you're released. You're not going to be in trouble. You just go, because the angel of the Lord's gone ahead. The Lord's, I had this conviction. The Lord spoke to me about this. Can you imagine the service like, dang, I better bring a lot of camels and a lot of good stuff, because I got to make a good impression here. It's driven by conviction. Hey, this is my heart, God. This is where my life is going. And man, I, wanna, I want a spouse that shares that heart. I want a spouse, I want a wife, I want a husband that is just going to, Add fuel to that fire. And I'm not trying to paint some weird pie-in-the-sky utopia Christian household. Every person is flawed. Every person. Every person has their issues and their difficulties. And then you take two of those kinds of people and you put them together. And it's a recipe for disaster. Except that the grace of God is there. Except that the love of God is transformative. And the Bible says God does a great miracle. He takes two people and he makes them one. There's a great mystery. There's a great, wonderful miracle that happens in marriage. And we have to be in faith for that. But it's not driven by what tickles our fancy. It's driven by these convictions. I'll keep moving. It's 1023. I need to be done soon. Johnny says, uh, hey, listen, Dave, we give a lot of room for the word. It's important at Mercy Hill. So I'm like, great. He should not have told me that. Because I've got, you know. All right. Uh, There were certain stakes in the ground that drove the process. Not shallow convictions, but long-lasting ones. We did that. It's about God's purpose and promise. Um, I wish I could take more time and talk about how God uses this issue of marriage. Um, as a picture, as a parable, as an illustration 
of the gospel. He takes this picture of marriage and in Ephesians 5, an amazing one, talks about how wives should submit to their husbands. Give them the place and the respect that they need to give them. And how husbands need to really love and cherish their wives and lay their lives down for them. And how marriage itself, and this should stir faith in you, marriage itself, itself is God himself uses it as a picture, as an illustration of the miraculousness of the gospel. It doesn't make sense that, that, that the holy God would humble himself and lay down his life for broken, rebellious people. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that, that rebellious people would find grace and respond and lovingly submit their, themselves. Sometimes when I even think about the language we use in church, surrendering and, and hands up, and when I look around at what we do in church and I think, what if I just inserted one of my unsaved neighbors into the middle of this? It wouldn't make any sense to them. Why would you give up all your rights? Why would you, lay, why, why would you just willingly and joyfully submit yourself to a book written so many years ago? So it is also, I mean, we know why. Because there's power and there's miraculous, wonder-working, transformative grace in it. But marriage is that same picture. Why would a, why would a, a grown, capable man say, I'm just going to lay down my life for this woman? I'm going I'm to set aside my rights. I'm going to set aside my, my, what I insist upon. And I'm going to say, no, I'm going to make it my business to work for her good. It's not, a, it's not a human idea. This is God's idea. Why would a capable woman, typically smarter than the man she's going to marry, with a much better memory, why would she willingly and joyfully submit to his leadership and delight in submitting to him? It's the same issue because there's wonderful, miraculous, transformative grace in that it's god's picture i'll make my last point quickly um and it's the issue of character it's the issue of character i've been struck by this profoundly in the last several years as i've counseled and uh, prepared young couples for marriage the thing that for me most powerfully predicts marital success is the character of those involving in the institution. You may think you have common interests. You may think that he makes you laugh. You may just be delighted in, in how she looks and dances and talks to your friends. But the critical issue in couples getting married is this issue of character. I love how the servant's sitting by the well. He's like, how am I going to find her? <laughs> Seriously, there's a bunch of women coming. He's like, they're about to get here. There's a bunch of these eligible young ladies. How am I going to pick them? Well, she's cute. She's strong. She's got like two jugs of water. Wow. Isaac will like that. She's like a workhorse. Well, she looks smart. She seems to be doing some sort of calculation about the volume of water. that. No. He's like, how do I do it? How do I pick? And he says a simple prayer to God. He's like, God, please. Please give, my, give me success. And he lays out this, this picture. Of, if I ask her for water, but help her not just to give me water, but also offer to water my camels. Okay? 
What kind of person does that? You know, hey, can I have some water? Get your own water. Not her. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I get in big trouble. If I brought her back, I'm out of here. Hey, can I have some water? Hey, some water. Get your own next time. He says, no, I, Lord, let it be a woman. Let it be a woman whose character, whose qualities I like this. Hey, can I have some water? Are those your camels? I'm going to water those too. You sit there and drink. I'm gonna, and, she, and, she says, and she filled until the camels, how much can camels drink? How much do you think, how much you think fit in her jar? Yeah. And how many camels did he bring? He brought like five camels because he had to bring a lot of good stuff because he had to make a good impression because he was like, this is not going to happen. And so here's this woman serving, working hard, filling up the camels are still drinking and she's getting more water and she's filling it up. And she, he sees her inner qualities her character because she is not just responding to his request but she is hard working diligently going above and beyond what he even asked and he says to himself there is a woman of beautiful noble character proverbs 31 just praises the wife of noble character not necessarily the wife who cooks good although they're praiseworthy or the wife who fill in the blank. But the wife of noble character. Who can find one of those? I love in um, 1 Peter chapter 3. Talking about wives and husbands. And it addresses the woman. But this character issue is not just for the wife. It's for the husband. All the more for the husband. But it just this is, this is focusing us on why these qualities are essential in marriage. And here it's talking about a woman. It says, verse 3, it says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. You can outwardly adorn. That's fine. But your, your real beauty shouldn't come from that. You go ahead and comb your hair. You keep that up. You brush those teeth. But your beauty doesn't come from your smile or your hair. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair or wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. And he cites Sarah from this story. When you ask the Lord for a wife or a husband, or when you look in the mirror at the kind of wife or husband you are or will be, I pray that you would value character above beauty, that you would treasure the inner qualities. If you know character flaws that you have, and you think, I'm going to really find a woman that I love, Consider this. Why would you inflict upon her? Why would you harm her by neglecting change in that area of your life? Make it your business to say, Lord, I long to participate in the heritage of filling the earth with people that love God. And as such, I want to be the kind of man or the kind of woman who doesn't do it my own way or this world's way, but knows the word of God and knows 
where I need to be so that I will not in five or 10 or 100 years be ready for marriage, but that I would make it my, my strong, urgent desire to become a man and woman of character who marries for the right reasons, for conviction's sake, and for the glory of God. Um, I'm going to end here. Um, that's my pitch for attending the marriage conference this weekend. Seriously, if you're married, or if you're one of those marrying age people that rose your hand, I strongly urge you, equip yourself in God's word to bring success to marriage. Martin Luther said, there's nothing more lovely than the company of a good marriage. Nothing more beautiful than being around two people who know how to live and love God together. And so that's my prayer for you, and it's my prayer for myself. Let's pray. Lord, that's our desire. We thank you for your word, which speaks remarkably clearly thousands of years after it was written right into our setting. And we simply pray, God, let us be people. Let us be people who it could be said, follow and obey your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.